We have uh, more and more women showing interest in, in football as players, as coaches, as referees. We are 50% of the world population and it's just normal that uh, their uh, voice is not overlooked. Olympic Channel Podcast. That was Fatma Samora from FIFA. I'm Ed Knowles and this is the official Olympic Channel Podcast. We find the very best people to talk about the biggest Olympic talking points every single week. If you love the Olympics, subscribe now wherever you find your podcasts. Olympic Channel Podcast. The FIFA Women's World Cup is happening and we've been across the globe interviewing players and organisers to bring you the reasons why this year's tournament in France will be one to remember. Coming up, we've got refugee-turned-footballer Ode Fulu Tudilu of South Africa. It has made me more sympathetic, made my heart. You know, I'm, I'm always for refugees and I think I always will be. We spoke to Jamaica's 17-year-old goal-scoring winger Jodie Brown on facing her idol, Marta. This is one of like the best things that's ever happened to me. Plus, we have an exclusive tour around FIFA headquarters with Sarai Behrman. But first... Olympic Channel Podcast. She holds one of the most influential roles in all of world football. Fatma Samora comes from Senegal and worked for the United Nations before taking up her FIFA job in 2016 as FIFA General Secretary. Nicholas Vinder grabbed his passport once again, this time for a trip to France to meet Fatma just days before the World Cup kicks off. We're in a taxi right now driving through central Paris and we're about to interview Fatma Samora, the first female secretary general at FIFA. And not just that, she's also the first African to take any top position at world football's governing body. Okay. Well, first of all, Fatma, thank you for taking your time to do this interview a few days prior to the first match of the 2019 Women's World Cup. Explain us a little bit about what should we expect of that tournament? A lot of excitement, Nicholas, first, because it's uh, my first Women's World Cup since I joined FIFA as its first Secretary General three years ago. It's taking place in France in a very uh, in a moment where the women are raising more and more their voices for equality and for more empowerment, when also women leaders are expecting to lead and also inspire younger generation. And also it's a moment for the players, the coaches, but also uh, the referees, all women, to shine. And uh, we have. Uh, uh, more and more women showing interest in, in football as players, as coaches, as referees. We are 50% of the world population and it's just normal that uh, their uh, voice is not overlooked. Um, the timing of this Women's World Cup that's going to be the, the biggest to date in, in, a, in a time where we have seen Me Too campaigns, we see more and more focus being put on gender equality and women's rights. I mean, the timing must be quite 
good for this tournament. Indeed, and that's why we have once again uh, pick up this slogan because we don't want uh, football to be considered as a chasse for only men. And uh, we have uh, uh, more and more women showing interest in, in football as players, as coaches, as referees, but also as simple fan or as a mother of the girls who are playing. And I think uh, because of the popularity of football that gather more than half of the world population, it's a good forum and it's a good investment also for, in terms of times for also women to use this forum to express their views. And we know that when once play football, it gains more self-esteem. The girls becoming more available of uh, the power that they have to influence their community, but also their peers. And uh, to me, it's not only a moment of uh, competition and of joy for the players, but it's also a moment to stand as one group and to just tell the rest of the world, yes, the world is becoming more and more uh, clear about uh, the power of football and have everybody really looking at these girls as models of inspiration. Let's talk a little bit about you and, and not about uh, politics, and, but about your person. Tell me about coming into FIFA as the first uh, female, uh, the first woman in a top position in FIFA and the first African. Tell me about the first years. Well, my, my appointment in May 2016 came as a surprise. To, to most of uh, uh, the members of the football family for the simple reason that it was the first time in the history on the 211, 212 years of history of FIFA that a woman who was coming from uh, Africa, was a Muslim, was, was not a part of the football uh, uh, family, was appointed to, to lead the FIFA administration. Uh, these three years have been a very exciting journey for me, but uh, sometimes very bumpy because uh, my appointment arrived at a moment where FIFA was criticized worldwide because of all those uh, scandals and, and corruption cases. But after three years, I can say that, uh, yes, we were able uh, with the leadership of president, the president of FIFA, Gianni Infantino, but also with the council members and the whole football family to transform a company that was considered as a toxic brand, as a very proud company with football being uh, uh, taken back into center stage and where we speak more about football, as you say, than about money and corruption and, 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 and money embezzlement. If we talk about your story coming from the UN, what was, what was your job like at the UN? What did you work for? And, and how did you end up in football? How was you being considered for a football job? This is a one billion dollar question. Anytime I'm meeting people uh, from uh, inside the world of football, the same question comes. I started my career in 95 with the UN, but prior to that, I worked eight years in the private sector in my, in my countries of origin, Senegal. So after 21 years in the UN, my last position was the UN resident coordinator and the UNDP resident representative in, uh, in Nigeria. I had decided to step down at 55. So when the offer from Jani comes when I, I, I was 54, I decided to accept it because I wanted to spend more time first with my family because throughout my career with the United Nations, I was most of the time posted in non-family duty station 
also in some very uh, unstable, politi politically stable countries. I was in Sierra Leone, I was in Liberia during the 96th war, I was in uh, Afghanistan uh, during the early uh, uh, Taliban areas, eras. I, was, uh, I worked in Somalia in the refugees operation. I worked in Nigeria with the uh, uh, problems of Boko Haram in the north of the country. I worked in refugee situation on protracted returnee situation and each time uh, my family could not follow me. So it was time for me <clears throat> to do something with my family and when this offer comes to lead the administration of FIFA, I just think it's a good way to combine my experience with the UN especially in, to, in pushing forward the human rights aspect within FIFA and that's what triggered my acceptance of the job. <clears throat> we are doing more and more in having women uh, sitting uh, on the highest board of FIFA which is the council. We are also having uh, more and more women in, within the FIFA administration. Today there are 43% women present in FIFA administration and uh, we consider that we have also made substantive effort to increase the number of women represented in the committees and I can sit, cite tens of examples of how my UN uh, experience had helped us to shape the way for more women to uh, join a world that was so far, uh, let's say, a male-dominated industry. Um. The continent where you come from, what place does women have in society? And if we have to translate that to football, what, what, where is women's football? Where is the, the woman in that society? Let's say that women's football in Africa is, is growing steadily. We cannot compare it to what's happening in, in Europe because uh, we don't have the same level of uh, involvement of women. We have uh, the African women's football is, is still facing a lot of... Uh, stereotype and a lot of also prejudice. Uh, it, it, they are social, they are cultural. It's not part of uh, uh, the culture in many countries, including in my own, when women playing football is considered as something that uh, is uh, not tolerated. Because today what we're seeing is that uh, physical education is not practiced anymore in many countries in Africa because of lack of funding. And I think that uh, this football for school that is a, a joint effort between FIFA and the, Af and the, African, uh, the African Union, but also UNESCO and the UN World Food Programme will set up sustainable basis for football to develop, start developing at grassroots level before we can scale it up to other uh, categories. But uh, today, the main uh, less challenge that the African football is facing is first and foremost the lack of competition among the senior football players. Fatma Samora, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Olympic Channel Podcast. Ode Fulu Tudilu plays for South Africa, but she was originally born in the Democratic Republic of Congo. She escaped war and found refuge in South Africa. Her talent as a footballer eventually meant that she got to represent her new country, and this season was playing top-flight football in the Spanish League for Malaga. We took a trip to the beach in southern Spain to meet O'Day and find out why playing at the World Cup means so much to her. <laughs> C. 
16 years as a refugee in South Africa. It was not easy. My father really struggled a lot to get work, to like to, to feed me. There was a few times when like we came close to sleeping on the street. When I was six years old, my father couldn't afford for me to continue going to school because he did not have the 50, 50 rand a month, which is maybe an equivalent of uh, five euros or something like that. I was born in Congo, DRC. Uh, we, left, we left Congo when I was four years old uh, because of the, the civil war there and the, the unrest. Uh, it was not safe for our family to be in Congo. One of the only memories I have of Congo was just as a young girl, I remember a group of what people that seemed like an army came into where we were living with guns and they just held everyone up. That's literally the only image that I have of Congo of that the unsafeness that it felt and so scared. It was in Cape Town that Ode Fulu to Dilu's passion for football was ignited. But her status remained a complication even after she turned semi-pro. Her determination to succeed took her to the United States to play and study. In South Africa, whenever the league started, I would not be able to start the league with everyone else because my refugee papers were not seen as le legitimate papers. So I would always have to wait like um, sometimes one month, sometimes two months, sometimes three months until when I can join my teammates and play all because I had refugee papers. So I just carried on training, carried on showing up at training um, until when they said she can play now. A call up to the national team followed her return to South Africa in 2014. When I was young, my closest dream was just to get to university because I knew that having an education will help me to have a better future. Football was only a tool that I was using to get my education. Fulu Tudilu signed for Malaga in 2019, becoming the first South African to play in Spain's top league. A late call up to the Biana Biana squad ahead of France 2019 was just the latest chapter in a remarkable journey. It felt extremely special, especially when I was in South Africa and when the news broke out and every single South African news outlet, uh, every single radio wanted to interview me about it. That's when it hit me that, it, oh wait, this is actually really huge. That's when I realized that this is something extremely special and I treasure the moment and I appreciate the experience. Of course, the 29-year-old doesn't forget where she's from or the plight of refugees around the world. No matter where I am, if, if I hear of them being treated bad, my heart breaks because, you know, because that's, that's who I was. Um, when I hear of them not being given equal opportunities, my heart breaks because, you know, that's who I was. So, yeah, and when I hear countries closing their borders to them, my heart breaks because that could have been me. I could have been stuck in the Congo, maybe killed, uh, because a country closed their doors to me. So, so yes, yeah, it, uh, it has made me more sympathetic, made my heart, you know, I'm, I'm always for refugees and I think I will always will be, yeah. From DLC to South Africa, Malaga and now France for the World Cup. Football has opened doors to O'Day beyond what she thought was possible. That would be a great, a great achievement to be able to say once my football is done that I've played in a major tournament. It's something to be proud of and it's something to, to uh, that people can look up to, young girls can look up to and when young girls can say that, hey, that girl, if that girl could do it, so can I.
Olympic Channel Podcast. Hi guys, I'm Sarai Barriman. I'm the Chief Women's Football Officer at FIFA and we're here today at the FIFA headquarters. So let me give you a behind the scenes tour. Nicholas Vinder went to Switzerland to talk to Sarai about equal pay, her favourite players and how excitement is building for the World Cup in France. Before they sat down to chat though, she took him for a quick tour. Okay, so when you enter into the gates of FIFA at the top, you have to come down the stairwell here in order to get to the building. And the cool thing about this is that we have these special tiles for every single one of our member countries. So it goes in alphabetical order and the names of each country are engraved here. So this one here is Zimbabwe. And I remember on my first day on the way down the hill, I stopped and took a selfie with the New Zealand one and the Samoa one. <laughs> so this is me, women's football. I've got my World Cup jersey with the slogan here, Dare to Shine. Uh, here is the official match ball for the FIFA Women's World Cup with a beautiful crown of flowers from the Cook Islands, which is the region where I'm from. Uh, I have some memorabilia from the different countries around the world that I've been to. This one is from Vanuatu. Uh, we have one up there from Burundi. And this is really cool. This is a replica of the ball that was played in the first ever FIFA World Cup in Uruguay in 1930. Okay, thank you, Saray, for having us here at FIFA today. When I walked in this morning, there were like signage on the wall saying France 2019. There were a lot of people in the lobby. It seems like this place is getting ready for the World Cup coming up in France. Yeah, absolutely. It's totally buzzing at the moment. Uh, it's awesome to walk in the front door and see a big Etty, our mascot for the Women's World Cup, and also the countdown, how many days to go until kickoff. But certainly there's a lot of momentum now and the whole organisation is buzzing for the Women's World Cup. So if we talk about this upcoming World Cup, the prize money have been doubled. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at a statement from FIFPRO, the, 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 the International Players Association. Mm -hmm. They think that by doubling it, it's still not enough. I mean, because in the men's game, the price money has gone up significantly higher yeah. and the gap, even though they have doubled the price money for this uh, year's uh, women's tournament, the gap is still getting bigger. Mm -hmm. What is your take on that? Yeah, yeah it's a difficult one, uh, the prize money, because it's, it's, uh, it's something that we announced um, last year, actually, the increase in the prize money. And for me, what was a very positive thing, actually, uh, was met with a lot of negativity. And I understand the, the, the view of FIFPRO and for those that are, are looking for equal prize money, I completely understand that. But I guess from my view, it's important to also look at the global landscape. So from 2015 until this summer in France, we've doubled the prize money but we've also introduced for the first time ever a club benefits program, which is basically where the clubs who are releasing players to play in the World Cup also receive some financial benefit from that. 
and preparation money, which had never been done before for the women's game. So the teams, the 24 teams that have qualified, are also now able to access preparation money to help them with friendly matches, camps or whatever it may be that they're doing in the lead up to the Women's World Cup. So those three things, the double of the prize money, the introduction of those two new elements, for me were really big positive steps forward for women's football. There's so much more that needs to be done in the women's game than just adding prize money on the Women's World Cup. I mean, some countries don't even have a sustainable national league. Where do the national team players come from if there's not a regular sustainable national league that clubs can participate in in order to identify those players? Uh, some countries don't have an elite player pathway in place. Uh, some countries, they don't even have a scouting program for national team players. So there's so many steps that need to be done around you know, developing the game and growing it in a sustainable way, that this will come as that evolves. But we have to be patient, we have to take time. I mean, there's a historical difference in the two. 61 years if you look just at the World Cups. So there's a long way to go. <laughs> if we talk about women's rights, and, and, and which is not just a topic in football these days, but in, in society in, yeah. in general. One of, the, one of the, uh, the big teams going out and standing up for women's rights is the US uh, women's uh, yeah. soccer team this year, yeah. actually filing a lawsuit, mm -hmm. um, arguing that they were winning more than the men's team, but weren't paid and paid as much and didn't have the same conditions uh, regarding travels and mm -hmm. preparations and that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. What do you make of, of teams standing together for, mm -hmm. for the rights like they have done? Yeah, I think as a woman, I will never go against another woman that's fighting for what she believes in. I think it's admirable in that respect. I mean, those players, you cannot say in any way, shape or form that they're not giving 100% to the game that they love. They're doing it full time. They're sacrificing so much in order to be there, to play, to train every day, to be away from their families. I mean, the commitment is incredible. And I think it's fair that they feel valued in doing that. In any industry, you want to feel valued for what you do. And that part of that is what you get paid. It's about being remunerated for that value. And yeah, I, I would never stand against a woman that was fighting for that right, absolutely. Maybe a bit random question, <laughs> but who is your favorite player and, and why? That is tough. That is tough. <laughs> uh, well, we spoke earlier about Ada, Ada Hagerberg. I mean, she's obviously amazing. Uh, when I was young, as a player myself, uh, Marta was always my idol. I mean, she was incredible, uh, particularly, you know, offensively. She was just beautiful to watch. She was the most known player. Uh, she's been the best player in the world uh, years and years in a row. Yeah, this summer in France is where we're going to see more and more of our players become household names and we're going to see so many breakout stars. Honestly, I, I can't wait. And to me, that's the thing I'm most excited about, is actually having an opportunity to see our best athletes shining on the world stage. 
It's such a rare opportunity. It only comes once every four years. And to see them performing at that highest level in that environment with full stadiums, with beautiful conditions, it's going to be amazing. And we're going to see so many breakout stars uh, come through this summer. And yeah, we need to make them household names for sure. But at, at the World Cup in France, the world's current world's best player, Ada Hegerby, won't be there, even yeah. though her, her team Norway has qualified because she has taken a stand for, for gender equality. Mm-hmm. She, she didn't feel that she, women's football was treated the, the right way mm-hmm. at her National uh, Football Association. What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, I again would say that you know any woman that is is making a stand particularly for gender equality or or for their rights i would never go against her i imagine that that must have been a a really tough decision for her to take Uh, i mean the women's world cup is is the biggest female sporting event in the world Uh, it's the pinnacle of the women's game so to be an athlete at her level and to make that decision i think it must have been a really tough one for her And I fully respect her for it. I mean, this is a a personal choice that she's made, she's standing up for, and that's a really admirable thing. Yeah. Next summer, Tokyo 2020 is on the agenda. Football is big in Japan, both for men and women. Um, How much is that just like this year's World Cup, you know, an opportunity for growth? Oh, it's incredible, yeah. I mean, the Olympics uh, are massive. And I think every athlete's dream, no matter what code you're in, is to participate in the Olympics and win a medal. And it's no different for women's football. Uh, And I've heard so many players speak about it, you know, their experiences and participating and being there and just the atmosphere that it creates, uh, particularly for the athletes, it's unique. To be able to stay in a village, to be surrounded by people who are like-minded, you know, it's there's something about it that is, I think is really incredible for those athletes. So from a from a player perspective, certainly it's massive. It's going to be massive. Uh, it's another great opportunity for them to shine at the highest level. Um, I know that the plan is for the final to be played in the big stadium, which will be super as well because it will be fully packed. Uh, so that will be an incredible moment as well, that Olympic final. Uh, but any opportunity where our best players and best teams can play on an international stage, particularly which is broadcast where there are fans in the stadiums where more eyeballs can see how athletic and skillful and beautiful the women's game is, is fantastic. And I think with the momentum of the World Cup, going straight into Tokyo will be a really, really nice way to just boost that momentum and keep it going. Sarah Berman, Women's Chief Football Officer at FIFA, thank you very much for having us. Thank you very much. It's absolutely my pleasure. Olympic Channel Podcast. My name is Jodie Brown. My sport is soccer and my country is Jamaica. Jodie Brown plays for Jamaica, but she goes to school in Florida in the USA. At 17, she's one of the youngest players at the tournament in France. We took another trip to the Sunshine State this time to see why everyone is getting so excited for this very, very talented youngster. 
Where I come from, like, I'm the only female playing soccer there. Looking at me like, why is she playing with the boys and stuff? Like, look at me like, like why, why am I here? Like, going to the Women's World Cup would make me feel great. This is one of, like, the best things that's ever happened to me because, like, I'm going to play against my idol. My idol is Morta. I didn't know like I would be like standing next to her playing in the future. Her school coach Robbie Aristodemo thinks Jody has all the attributes to become an important player for Jamaica. Jody Brown, you know, again, 17 years old. She's full of character, great personality. Obviously, she's getting a lot of attention now that Jamaica is is pushing forward to France, and uh, you know the girls, you know, love being around her, love training with her. But she's a great character, you know, full of life, always smiling, and certainly she enjoys her football. Very short. She's probably about five foot three, five foot four. Uh, she doesn't weigh much, uh, but she's extremely quick, fast. I think one of the one of the biggest attributes for Jody is that she's a very intelligent footballer. And so the game plan for France. Going to the World Cup, I think I will do great. Um, continue scoring goals, work hard, um, play for my team, play for my teammates, and hopefully we can get a great result. Thank you. That interview is over. No. <laughs> Olympic, Olympic Channel, Channel podcast. podcast. Big thanks to Nicholas Vinder, Mark Condren and Ashley Tullock for the interviews. If you enjoyed this week's episode, then tell some people. Stick a quote in your Instagram story with a picture and tell your friends. Remember to give at Olympic Channel a tag so we can see it. And if you want to follow me, I am at Eddie Knowles with an I and an E on socials. Another thing, if you like this week's episode, is that we had an interview with Arda Hegerberg about Lyon, the Champions League, and why she isn't going to the World Cup in France to represent Norway. Here's a clip from that episode. We live in a world of change, I believe. You can see that more and more women stand up for the rights, especially in sports, uh, as well in the society. So it's all about supporting each other, I think. So I've put a link to that episode in the episode description of this episode so you can check it out if you haven't already. A five-star review on the podcast app is another amazing way to help us go up in the podcast charts. Maybe that's the place to put a motivational quote too. That's it for now, though. See you soon. Think like an Olympian.